I remember when somebody who worked for me sent me a card and she said, thank you for showing us how to make the impossible possible. And I think that that idea, like standing in Times Square, October 7th with Bernadette Peters and 24, you know, illustrious performers, watching them sing Sunday in the Park with George with this amazing group of volunteers who made that happen. You know, and we've been able to get Clear Channel to donate all their billboards. I mean, I was like, how did an immigrant girl from Iran become part of this? And I think that's a, it's a valid question. This week's guest, Mariam Banakarim, does not see barriers, obstacles or problems other than to seek out ways to remove, overcome or resolve them. Born in Iran but raised in the US, Mariam's innately curious and inquisitive mind has enabled her to navigate every challenge that life has dealt her and set her on a diverse path of career success. Regularly acknowledged in the lists of most creative people or most powerful women in business, Mariam devours challenges that can be summed up in the phrase that she used in the interview, I love a good no. Now global CMO for Nextdoor, Mariam kindly agreed to share her perspective on life, work and communities. Her lens on life is based on a desire to help others, and through that, she discovers purpose. Her work at Nextdoor and her pandemic social initiative, New York City Next, Mariam's work is bringing people together, building stronger communities and connections and cultivating neighbourly kindness. In this interview, Mariam shares her perspectives on life, work and community, and how we build stronger, more equitable, resilient neighbourhoods and cities as we move beyond the pandemic. Mariam's positive problem-solving mentality, curiosity and vitality is uplifting and her infectious spirit of the possible will surely provide inspiration to all that encounter it. And a big shout-out to previous guest Ben Hartley from the National Arts Club for recommending that we interview Mariam. Now, on with the show. Mariam, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get going. So, Mariam, before we discuss your incredible life journey in marketing and you describe yourself as a purpose-driven change agent, can we talk a bit about your childhood and your education? Sure. From what I've read and, uh, and heard you on other interviews, you were born in Iran but departed at an early age due to the revolution, eventually arriving in uh, San Francisco in the US. I have to say, uh, a little time out here, my parents lived in Iran during the revolution, I was at boarding school in the UK and I used to have to go out there for summer holidays to Tehran. I had many a hot, many hot summers there and also learned to ski in Iran. I know, me too. I learned skiing in Iran too. Yeah, probably the coldest I've ever been. <laughs> people don't usually think that people ski in Iran or that we have four seasons. So it is one of those funny things. Yeah. And were you based in, in Tehran? Yeah, we, I grew up in Tehran, and then in 79, we moved actually first to Paris and then to the suburbs of San Francisco to Lafayette, California. So perhaps you could just talk about the impact that your parents had. I've heard that your mother was a TV strategist and your father a banker. What influence did they have on the journey that you've taken in your life and the, and the values and your sense of self-belief or worldview? Well, I mean, first of all, I grew up in an intergenerational home, like my grandparents were always around. So my grandmother in particular from my mother's side um, and my grandfather were big influences on me because my parents, um, they had me in their early 20s. And so they were young professionals who were quite busy. So I was really raised in part by my grandparents and my grandmother in particular, she was like the energizer bunny. She never, ever stood, stood still. So everybody always says we're very similar. And she was 
eternally curious. You know, I remember when we were living in the States, she came to live with us for a while and she was taking English as a second language at the community church and she cooked and she sewed and, you know, she had wanted to be a doctor and her father who had immigrated to Iran from Russia wouldn't, didn't want her to go away from home. And so ended up, she ended up being a teacher. So I sort of grew up with her as a teacher who cooked at home and sewed clothes and was constantly entertaining and, you know, spoke many languages and was just eternally curious. So I think she was a big part of my life. And then I would say, I've thought about this recently. So while both my parents were professionals after the revolution, you know, by way of Paris, we moved to Lafayette and Lafayette was a pretty lily white suburb of San Francisco. They picked it because it was a affluent suburb. So the schools were quite good. And so they wanted us, you know, education as an immigrant, everybody focuses on education. And so we ended up in Lafayette and this is the craziest of stories. When we lived in Paris, they were waiting to see what was going to happen with the revolution. So neither of my parents were working at the time and I was going to a French school. And so to keep my, to keep busy, my mom and another friend of hers who worked in the TV station enrolled in cooking school, baking school at Cordon Bleu. Now, and my mother, I don't think spent a day in the kitchen because, you know, she went from, you know, graduating school to like a job. Well, it's, and, there's no linear path between the strategy, television strategists and, and baking. It's a strange well, one. It's a bit of so, a pivot. It, it was literally, I think she just took the class and maybe it wasn't even her idea. They just did it as something to do so that they weren't just sitting at home anxiously waiting to see what was happening with the revolution. It was, a, it was a great thing as a kid because we got a lot of baked goods at home between their experiments. But anyway, so we fast forward, we moved to Lafayette and I don't even know how they came up with this idea, but they were like, there weren't a lot of French bakeries at the time and they decided they should open one, you know, with zero experience in the restaurant business. And to your to the point that you made, a banker and a TV strategist decide to become bakers. And really, I should say my mom, because she ended up going to Berkeley and taking a job where she apprenticed for somebody who was a baker at crazy hours. And then they opened up the first French bakery in Lafayette. It was called Le Croissant. And um, I, was in jun- <laughs> I was in junior high. And you should, I, um, you should have been helping with the branding strategy at that point. <laughs> You know, it turned out, see it, say it name. It works. And, you know, I learned how to make cappuccinos, right? And so I loved actually working behind the counter. And it was a very social job, you know, front of the house. So that's, quite, my... that's, that's quite interesting then. So you were really getting exposure to a neighborhood at that time and building under, building connection. A hundred percent. And I think that it was a very social experience, that, that experience. Because, you know... My parents were both quite sociable. You know, they always had people who came in and out and they were social people by nature. So anyway, so interestingly enough, they had this bakery, which they then sold. But, you know, it's kind of an interesting early experience. And then we moved to Newport Beach my second semester senior year. And I, I ended up wanting, you know, I wanted a job. I was always looking to be busy. And so I took a job actually at Le Petit Boulangerie down the street. And I used to have to wear like little terrible looking beret and um, uniform and serve, you know, baked goods then too. And, you know, in Iranian homes, they don't want you to actually, they want you to just study and not be distracted by things like jobs, but I really pushed through. <laughs> so you mentioned to your grandmother, you described her as eternally curious from your, the career you've had and your, your, the way you describe your problem solving mentality and you're clearly a curious person. Was that something that was cultivated either by your grandmother or your parents or something that's just innate to you? I think it's probably, I don't know, is it nature or nurture, right? That's an internal question. I think that we, there was never limits in that sense in my home. It was sort of like you could be anything you wanted to be. 
I joke, my mom's always like, you can still be Oprah. And I like roll my eyes even at my age now. I'm like, seriously, mom, I cannot be Oprah now. And she's like, why not? And so there was always that really irritating backdrop. <laughs> backdrop. But I think they were always interested in things. I mean, they were, they were all educators. My grandfather was a principal of a school. They were constantly reading. He was always reciting poems I didn't understand. Like, so there was sort of that backdrop on a regular basis. And I grew up, you know, traveling with my parents. They took me when they went on business trips. And so I sort of got to see the world as a kid. And that meant, you know, just being exposed to lots of things, which is mm-hmm. something I really focused on when I had my own kids. Do you see your grandfather reciting poetry? Rumi, yes, no doubt. Yes, he was yeah. he, literally, he, you know, the memory I have of grandpa's playing backgammon and reciting poetry that I didn't understand. <laughs> Ah, what a wonderful memory. But so you mentioned you moved a lot. I moved a lot as well as as a child. And I've always felt that I felt comfortable in any new city, place, job, company that I've ever found myself in that old sort of adage, wherever you lay your hat, that's where you're home. We're living in a, in a world today that's probably as unpredictable as it's ever been. But do you think that you're moving a lot really prepared you for the ambiguity of the world we're living in today and to have navigated um, your career the way you have done? Well, I think I grew up recognizing that the only constant was change. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I would say I landed and I felt like I belonged. I was very focused on becoming an insider when I landed. I sort of always wanted to be, I didn't want to be a tourist. No matter where I went, I wanted to find a way to like plug in pretty pretty quickly. And so I joke, I was like an anthropologist or a sociologist. I, I learned skills to like be patient and slow down and like clock the room to understand like what people wore, you know, like I showed up in the middle of the hostage crisis. I was fortunate then that I didn't have an accent, but I showed up and moved from Paris and I dressed like a little French schoolgirl. I had lace up ballet shoes, you know, a little petit bateau shirt and a poofy skirt. And that was the era of the Calvin Klein jeans, Nike sneakers and um, Izod shirts. So within a day, I sort of looked around, I really stood out. I remember going home and saying to my parents, like, I need to go to the mall. You know, particularly at that age, you were looking to be like everybody else, right? And so one quick way you stood out was in how you dressed and behaved, right? And so I was always sort of like reading. It's Now I realize that that's actually somebody's job. Like people actually track trends and go places to see what how people are behaving. It was kind of like your survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what, that helps. And, and, and what about siblings? I have a younger sibling. She's seven years younger than me. Seven years, particularly in that, in that time, made a big difference because she was three when the revolution happened. So she really spent most of her time outside of Iran. But her too, I think we're both quite resilient because we had no choice. It's sort of born out of necessity. Yeah. Well, I've interviewed so many people that come from immigrant backgrounds and they all talk about the importance of education and being driven by their parents. And very few of people I've interviewed have rebelled against that. Most people have just thrown themselves into it and really applied themselves. What was it like for you, school? Was it something that you well, navigated quite it's funny. Let's take the step back. Maybe hmm. your data is is impacted by who gets on your show. Because <laughs> maybe well, by definition, who ends up on your show is somebody who's sort of somebody who throws themselves in. It's possible, you know. It could uh, be. But then again, we don't decide because I never, it's always based on the person that I interview asking them, who do I interview next? So it's completely serendipitous. Yeah, it's serendipitous. So, it's, so maybe it's, it is. They're all, there's a connection between there, there's everyone. There's a connection a between 
everybody who sort of digs in. I mean, you know, for me, I, I would say I wasn't the smartest student. I wasn't, you know, Phi Beta Kappa. I wasn't, you know, valedictorian of my class. I just tried, right? And I, even to this day, I don't think I'm the smartest. I don't think, you know, I do lots of new jobs. I show up. There's so many people who know more than me. I'm just good at connective tissue and and thinking about how do I solve a problem? I mean, you know, as you know, we started a, non, a nonprofit called New York City Next in the middle of the pandemic, because that's the kind of crazy we are, really to help the city. Because for me, New York is really the first place that really made me feel like I belong, partly because I think there's no one pers- kind of person, right? There's eight of everybody, I think is what somebody told me the other day. There's what? Eight, of, Eight of every kind of person. So there's no oh. uniformity. And I and I think about that because one of the things that's been interesting about this all volunteer effort to help the city is that I love a good no, right? And so what teaches you that? So I remember when we wanted to do our first pop-up on the steps at Times Square, the city was frozen. There were no permits being given. All the very illustrious people who we'd gotten connected to were like, there's no way you're going to get this permit to do this song on the steps at Times Square, and I just, you know, I'm, I sort of love a good no, because it's like, okay, how do I solve this puzzle? And so I was able to figure out how to get to somebody who, upon hearing the idea, was like, we'll give you the steps. And we actually are going through a similar project now where everybody was like, there's no way this is going to happen. And, you know, you just move the pieces around. And so I wake up, <laughs> I'm one of those nuts who wakes up in the middle of the night being like, okay, how do I move it around just a little bit to get to the answer? But I think but And so my husband, who's, you know, sort of grew up in Cincinnati, sort of in the same home his whole life, he always says to me, like, I wonder why you're built that way. And so I don't know. I think, like, if you're constantly trying to solve, I'm, I'm constantly trying to move the pieces to see if I can move the equation in a way to get to the answer. It's a great, it's a great personality characteristic to have embrace a thought like you love a good no it's almost like saying that same thing i've heard someone else say i think it might have been beth comstock that said uh no's just uh one step away from yes or something mm-hmm. similar to that mm-hmm. and it's that mentality of saying everything i mean it is inherently tied up in the that there is nothing that is impossible without you know without the if you've got the will or the wherewithal you'll find a way well and i and i say to people now you know i love beth right but i say to folks all the time that you have to have a plan A, B, and C, right? Because this may not work, but there may be another way. Like asking the same question in a different way sometimes gets you a different answer, right? And so what is the thing you're really trying to solve and sort of being open to the different ways of solving it? I think sometimes people get very locked into like, it has to get solved in this way. And I'm like, okay, step back. Why are you trying, like, what is it you're really trying to solve and why? And is there a different way to get to that? I would say, I had early success. So it's also based on now lived experience, right? So I've, I've been able to make this happen. So that, so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you actually then believe in this superpower. And so then you keep repeating it. Right. And I think I remember once somebody who worked for me, sent me a card and she said, thank you for showing us how to make the impossible possible. And I think that that idea, like standing in Times Square, October 7th with Bernadette Peters and 24, you know, illustrious performers watching them sing Sunday in the Park with George with this amazing group of volunteers who made that happen, you know, and we'd been able to get Clear Channel to donate all their billboards. I mean, I, I was like, how did an immigrant girl from Iran become part of this? And I think that's a, it's a valid question. <laughs> yeah, but it's inspiring as well for those that see barriers or see obstacles to understand that there are always ways 
to overcome them. So it's, it's... I, I heard L.A. Reid speak. He had a book out and I went to his an event where he spoke and he said, I chose not to see the obstacles. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like I remember my husband turned to me and he said, you're like that. And it's not that I don't see the obstacle. It's a moment where you compartmentalize and put them aside. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an attitude of whether you see them, or, but it's whether you believe that they can be moved mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> or navigated or, or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so based on what you're saying there, why did you study political science? What was, where, what was that when you went to university? What, what were your plans at that point? I had no plans. I just knew I didn't want to be a business person like my parents. And apparently I didn't do a good job of that. Um, <laughs> no. You know, for me, coming to Barnard and to, you know, to be at Columbia and, you know, get to go to school in New York City was sort of a perfect combination, right? I'd never really been to New York. I sort of showed up sight unseen. And it was like being a kid in a candy shop. There was like more things to do than there were hours in the day to do them, right? I had an internship pretty much every semester. It varied from working at CNN to working for a political consultant. I mean, every semester I had a different job because I I thought everything was interesting, right? I mean, for me, it was like hard to choose. You know, I would read about punk rock ballet on the cover of New York Magazine, and then I would call the Brooklyn Academy of Music and figure out how to get an internship. Like, that's just how I, and, and, and I had a lot of energy, right? I, my kids always complain. I had a lot of energy. So I had a full class load and then I would go do the internship. And then I, I always loved gathering people. So in college, I also threw parties. So it's kind of a combination of all these things. And I used to make lists of things that I loved. And I joke, you know, throwing parties was always on the list. But I think, why did I study political science? You only had to take nine classes to have a major. So, you know, you take lots of classes in the course of four years. I took the bare minimum of political science class. I took every class known to mankind. I took a class with Brzezinski. I took a class at the film school. I mean, you can imagine there was like more classes that you wanted to take than there was hours in the day to do them. But I was a kid who grew up in revolution. So, I mean, political science wasn't that far afield. Do you think you're a polymath? What does that even mean? Well, just someone that's got a very diverse range of interests. A hundred percent. So, you know, I had a chance to meet David who wrote that book, Range. And so, and really the reason I ended up meeting him is somebody said to me, oh my God, you are the definition of that book. For me, I probably am a generalist with like breath. You know, Mm -hmm. I say like, I'm not like the deep, you know, there's some people who they study to become a neuroscientist and they're very deep in that. For me, it's always been about the range. Mm -hmm. Um, And then being able to make connections between And being able to make connections between them. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your career. I'm going to read a quote that I read or heard you say, and this is verbatim. It's when you started out on a production set on Highlander 2 working in Buenos Aires. You said that you learned that you can have all the plans in the world, but things change. When you can see the opportunity when it changes, it can take you in different places. This feels to me like you were just being very open or seeking out serendipity. So I'm wondering how that sort of attitude which is very sort of very mature for a young age to sort of think about life in that way. How did it equip you as you tra- traverse? And I use the word traverse very deliberately because you have really traversed a, a very non-linear sort of career. Where did that thought come from? It comes from a plan A, B, and C mm-hmm. because I never knew what was going to work. It's like playing the odds, <laughs> except that but where did, but where, I'm not a gambler. <laughs> but where did that plan A, B, and C come from? Because... That someone that must have been instilled in you at some point to think that way, or was it just natural? I, I don't know. I think like when you survive a revolution, where all like where you realize it's early on true, yeah. you have no control, 
Mm. You sort of realize like you have no control. And so, you know, you can make a plan, but you don't know that you actually are going to be able to deliver it. Right. And so I, I always was that kid who had a plan A, B, and C. I, I just, I was always mm. that way. So, I mean, I, I have this, I have two college age kids now, one who's graduated. And I was having this conversation with my son the other day and he wants to get a job and he's working on it in a linear pattern. He's, he's sending in the application and waiting until he hears. And I was like, well, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I went to Argentina thinking I would be an investigative reporter. I didn't know, but that was sort of my initial thought, right? I planned that that's what I was going to do. I didn't know a single person, but I, you know, figured I could find my way. I showed up there and they were making Highlander to the movie in Argentina. It was like the biggest thing that was happening in Argentina, as you can imagine, because it was like Sean Connery and Christopher mm. Lampert. And I um, literally didn't know anybody. I got to the airport. I had, you know, I worked and saved up money. I checked into like an apart hotel that I'd read about. And I'd been, I'd sort of told people I was going. So everybody sort of like knew a person seven steps removed. And I had a list of names of people. And I called one of these women and I had coffee with her. And I said, oh, I heard Highlander 2 is being shot here. If I go to the movie set and I figure out a way to get a story, then maybe I could use that story as a way to get a job at the Buenos Aires Herald, which was the only English language newspaper in Buenos Aires at the time. And this was a time of hyperinflation. It was like men in era. And she said to me, I'm not good at that kind of thing. And honestly, I somehow figured out like where the production office was. And I convinced her to go with me. She was local. She was Argentine. Her name was Sabrina. And we showed up at the offices and I was, I was a fast talker. They said, how can we help you? (laughs) Yes. I I was good on my feet. I said, they said, how can we help you? I said, "Um, I hear you're hiring people. And so the receptionist said, sit right here. I'll be right back. And so she went to the back and I started writing down all the names of the people because this is in the old day before the internet, all the names of the important people were on the wall for fast access in case of a, you know, disaster in the production. So I thought, okay, this is how I'm going to get my big story. And she came out and she said, follow me. And the two of us walked in and not only did I get a job on the production office, so did Sabrina. So, you know, should I have said, no, I'm going to go become an Mm -hmm. investigative reporter. I was like, I got a job. (laughs) So for seven weeks, I worked Mm -hmm. on Highlander 2, the movie in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of you just solving problems and overcoming obstacles and not seeing barriers in your way. You also mentioned that you have an ability to spot patterns. And that's really sort of guided you. I mean, that isn't something you learn at university or business school. It's something that's just innate. So again, do you think that problem-solving ability or spotting patterns is also comes from being a result from the revolution or is there some other characteristic or something that you, you've developed? I think I was wired that way. I think I was curious. So I read, I again, I think I liked range. So I read lots of different things. I didn't just read a gaming magazine. I, I, I honestly, I found everything interesting, right? I was like, I, I always find everybody has a story. So there's mm-hmm. lots of things you can just go down the rabbit hole of learning about. How do you um, nurture that in your teams or in your kids? Well, I mean, with my own kids, I made sure that I did what my parents did, which is I took them places. I think that if you see things, right, like it opens up your aperture. I also think you learn by osmosis, right? Like I grew up in a family where my parents entertained, so you had access to lots of different people. Again, what you realize, 
when you have kids, it's even the most brutal lesson is that you actually have no control there either. So you can't plan to have your kids turn out a certain way. But I remember we had a dinner party once and um, this is a crazy story, but Billie Jean King was at the dinner. And this was before Billie Jean King had become sort of, it was before she came back into Vogue and um, she was at dinner. So was John Leguizamo. So this is like a totally crazy story. But anyway, so my kids were around 12. And so Billie Jean King comes in, she starts talking to Natasha, who's 12, and she she starts talking about how pressureless and privilege and what does she want to do. And I think she was just so startled. She just didn't know how to take that in at all. And so John Leguizamo comes up and he's like, I had no idea what I was doing. So don't worry about it or whatever. But it was this like moment of like, just exposure, right? To the idea of different kinds of things. I think about that all the time. Somebody said to me once, oh, they have a perfect job. It would have been great for you if you were younger. And they were talking about being a trend spotter for Calvin Klein. And I remember being like, what is this job? Why didn't I know about this job earlier? Because like, imagine, like I get paid to travel the world and just look for trends. So, you know, life is about access, right? About having, you know, they say all the time, you can't be what you can't see. How can you actually see lots of things? But you have to be drawn to that, right? You you do. And that's why people will leave small towns and come to places like New York because they yeah. want to see more the, things. And the power of the network. And the and power the, of the, the network. Connection. Just for getting on, because we're going to talk about networks and, and next door, what you're focused on now. I mean, we are, I've mentioned before, we're living at an accelerated sort of pace. It feels like the world's going exponential. And particularly with the pandemic, everything's sort of accelerated. Work, the future work, who really knows what it's going to be like and how it's going to evolve? What we do know for certain is that AI and machine learning isn't going to go away and it's changing every industry and creating more ambiguity for people in terms of what we what we'll all end up working on and whether we end up, the work exists at all or if it's just universal basic income. But if you were starting out again today and given that you said you have got plan A, plan B and plan C, how would you approach university today if just putting yourself in the shoes of someone about to start out, given what you know about the world today? Look, I think like anything, I think you have to care, right? So for me, I have to inherently be interested. When I started college, my father said to me, and this was, I went to college in 1985. He was like, you should study computer programming. I spent one, you know, I spent a couple of nights in the basement of Butler Hall trying to figure out what the Pascal was. And I was like, that's just not happening. So I ended up (laughs) dropping the class, right? I mean, you have to, for me, okay, and everybody's built differently. So I would say there are people who have a plan. There are people for whom, you know, there's a different path. For me, I had to inherently be interested. So, I mean, if you're not inherently interested in AI, that's a lot of your life you're going to spend on something like that. Mm. Now, if you're interested in solving community problems and you have to understand AI as a means to an end, then you might go study AI, but Mm. make sure you're interested in the thing you get to do because you do spend a lot of time at work. You know, my, my sister jokes, she says, even if, even if you didn't have to, you'd work. And I, I do enjoy it because for me, one of the things that work is given is the opportunity to learn new things, meet lots of different people, and I find that energizing. I made a documentary series way back at the beginning of the 2000s when I was working um, for an agency uh, called Gray, and we had a client, Oracle, and we made a documentary series called The Players, and we interviewed Richard Branson in his garden in Notting Hill. And, and he said, the only thing that marks me out as different to anyone else is I just have more problems to solve, and I solve, and I solve them. And, and it strikes me that you're... I don't, I don't think you'd be very satisfied in life if you didn't have problems to solve. 
I love a good problem. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, it's interesting you just say you just continue to work, that uh, you seek out problems. Whereas a lot of people, again, going back to this sort of this lens through which you view life, you can either view it, you know, we call it glass half full, glass half empty, or if you see it as a problem, as a, an opportunity, or as a problem, as a, an obstacle. Um, I, I think I was motivated by helping. And by the way, when you get to help someone, you get to actually step in, right? It gives Uh you purpose. I think about the pandemic, like people say, you know, it's been crazy and it has been obviously and terrible and many levels. But when we stepped in to help and created New York City Next, we found purpose out of despair, Mm -hmm. right? We actually found community. We had moments of joy because we got to get people to sing in public together for like one song, right? And so it changed my experience of the pandemic. And I do think... It's funny, my neighbor Nathaniel said that to me. He said, you, you're you sort of in flow when you get to help. And, and it's true. I, I, I'm sort of motivated by being useful. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, let's talk about being useful and, and next door. Um, next door is a, a neighborhood a local social, well, social network launched in 2008, a social network for neighborhoods enabling local conversations in order to build stronger, safer communities. I mean, you've mentioned the pandemic, that it, it's certainly given a platform like Nextdoor an even a broader mission, a new meaning. I We interviewed for Back the Neighbourhood, Father Graham Napier, and he described to us how he embraced and used Nextdoor as a platform for really getting a deeper understanding of the needs of his community, not just his parishioners, but the community around him, as to what the pain points and the needs were. I mean, without something like Nextdoor, that would have been uh, impossible for him to turn his idea to help in some capacity, which ended up being a a city-wide five-borough initiative feeding the food insecure. And it was all as a result of Nextdoor. So I would love you to just give a perspective on how Nextdoor has evolved over the pandemic and if if it's in any way expanded or changed its core mission? So the founding of Nextdoor was basically around a Pew study that showed up that said 28% of Americans didn't know a single neighbor, right? We'd become more connected as a society and yet more disconnected. And, And the founding was about, could we leverage technology to actually solve for this disconnection? Because when you are connected, and there's so much research, right, from the weak ties research to the middle ring research that says when you have connections to sort of this middle ring of people who are not your best friends, but sort of people within your immediate vicinity, you actually are healthier, happier, and just more successful. That's on an individual level. There's also research that says when you connect neighbors and they become part of an ecosystem, the neighborhood thrives, right? So it's an individual and a neighborhood level equation. So that's sort of the premise of Nextdoor, leveraging technology to enable real world connection. I think the reason that Nextdoor has always been interesting to me is that it gives you instant distribution to your neighborhood. Now that's true if you're a business or if you're you're the father that you mentioned or just me, right? I wanna Mm -hmm. let neighbors know that something's happening or ask for help or whatever it is. I can immediately broadcast to those closest to me. And that's really the superpower of Nextdoor, right? That actually you can do these two things at at scale, but also in real life, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the pandemic hit, our purpose, which is around cultivating kindness so that everybody has a neighborhood they can rely on, just came into full relief, right? Because the people next to you were your first line of defense. So that February, 
we had an 80% increase in daily active users. But wow. if you put those numbers aside, right? Because you were not leaving, right? right? I'm in Chelsea. We did not leave our neighborhood for months on end. And we had neighbors who didn't leave their home because they were immunocompromised or they couldn't. And so the thing that was really like the silver lining, if there is such a thing, was how many people showed up to help. Like the preponderance of people people who wanted to help. They said, hey, I'm able-bodied, I can run groceries. It was really remarkable, just like you're describing, right? Mm -hmm. And so what we turned to is like, how can we meaningfully meet the need of neighbors in that moment? Like, like forget marketing, forget business. It was like, there's like a real need, people are dying. Like, let's be useful. And so we immediately enabled groups so that you could find each other easier. Then we had something called a help map, which was really used um, initially for trick-or-treating. It was a map that allowed you to visually pin yourself so you could know which houses to go to for uh -huh. trick-or-treating. We converted it into help maps so that you could pin yourself and say, I need help or I, I can offer help so then a neighbor could see like by proximity how close or far you were from them if they needed something like those were moments that were quite magical right and so i think after 365 days of this experience these are habits that are going to stay right mm -hmm. if you go back to the early days villages tribes like you were defined by geography those closest to you I've lived in Chelsea for you know 20 some years and in the same house except for the four years we lived in Chicago but I did not have the same relationship to that my neighbors or my place because I was always on a plane right I mean I remember my neighbor Sam saying to me this is the longest conversation we'd had because usually I would say hi and then I'd be getting in the taxi to LaGuardia so I think that this sense of connection not just to the people but to the place is something that we really are gonna retain on the other side of the pandemic. And so all these efforts that have shown up in the city, like Back the Neighborhood, like West Village mm. Love, like Art in the mm. Avenues, I mean, there's so many. Mm. You actually see that the place that you call home is an incredible part of your identity. And so people care, they care about their neighborhoods, they care about the local businesses. You know, Susan organized a GoFundMe for the ENT workers. Like, and the more you get connected to you know, not your best friends, but the people closest to you, sort of this middle ring, the happier you really are. And I sort of had this experience Sunday because I woke up Sunday morning. I took my son, Nikki. We had heard from one of our neighbors that Daily Provisions had the best egg sandwich in town. So we walked from Chelsea over to 19th and Park. We sat down and a friend of mine is nearby. So I texted Jennifer and said, hey, Jennifer, we're going to be at Daily Provisions if you're around. And so as we were waiting to order, I got in a conversation with a guy um, who turned out to be the general manager. So I heard the whole backstory of Daily Provisions, which was really a gift from Danny Myers to the neighborhood. Uh -huh. And then Jennifer came by. We all got to sit down together with Seth, the general manager. I was trying to pitch him on opening up a daily provisions in Chelsea. And of then as we, were, <laughs> as we were getting up to leave, we turned and there was Anne and her family. So then we had this moment with Anne and her family, right? So this notion of like New York being a series of villages of us having this connective tissue, there's mm -hmm. something magical about that, right? It helps you feel plugged in to sort of the energy source that is your neighborhood. The, and by the way, so then I came home and my block association president had sent me a note that a gentleman named Brian was organizing an opportunity for people to meet a city councilman. Brian has been posting on next door for several weeks now because he's trying to meet his neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so he keeps organizing social events to connect neighbors to each other. And so I went to his event. And so, I mean, this ability to get in touch, I say to Susan who runs the block association all the time, she's relying on an email and flyers, right? right? And so other ones, otherwise you have to run into her. And so guess what? The tools have evolved to give you a much better way 
to sort of get connected because you don't have all your neighbors' phone numbers. You don't know their last names. They may or may not sign up for the block association. You want to know how they feel about the, you know, closed street. How do you get to people at scale so that you can really get a representative sampling of opinions? Um, so, so I've got two two sort of thoughts, and I'd love your perspective on it. Uh, the positive you're describing is an incredible sort of acceleration of neighborly spirit and connectivity. Mm-hmm. As you say, you describe it as this middle ring. And it's a, it is. It, so there's been, with just the increase in daily active users, it's changing people's behavior. They're, they're, the repeated use of the platform is starting to open up their eyes into the power of connectivity and community. That presumably isn't going to go away. That is going to have some accelerated effect on the positive side of the community. But at the same time, we've witnessed an incredible increase in acceleration of e-commerce and use of Amazon and other platforms mm-hmm. for ordering online, which has damaged a really deep, really torn apart parts of the core part of neighbourhood, which is local retail, and mom and pop stores. So how do we balance what we're seeing you're describing is this incredible sort of community spirit that's being rekindled and reignited. But at the same time, you know, this chasm ripped through the very heart of communities when these businesses go away. How are we going to re-energize and and, and bring back uh, local business? Is that something that either New York Next can can work with or is it something that next door can help there's a lot of efforts around that because basically your neighborhood is an ecosystem it's made up of your neighbors it's made up of those small businesses like stefan's bergamot Mm -hmm. it's made up of you know big national brands right so you have to care about the entire ecosystem and honestly one of the other things that happened as soon as people started offering help in february and early march the next pivot was oh my god how can we help our small businesses to yeah. people saying, hey, I'm going to buy bagels at Murray's and actually send them to the ENT workers, right? It was like actually like a viral loop, right? Of like connecting, supporting the local business as well as um, supporting your neighborhood or the public services in your neighborhood. So I think that I hear a lot about people wanting to shop local, recognizing that, yes, it may not be as economical as shopping on Amazon, but that it actually is what makes their neighborhood their neighborhood, right? I mean, it's all those little businesses are actually what makes the city or your, you know, Chelsea, Chelsea. So I think Mm -hmm. we all have to care about that. There are lots of efforts underway to actually um, help local businesses. One of the most interesting ones I like here in New York is Shop in NYC, where she, Maya, has actually connected you to be able to shop Brooklyn, whether you want to shop Brooklyn from Cincinnati or locally, right, to try and get you sort of that ease of delivery mechanism so that you don't actually have to depend on an Amazon. But what I would say to you is like, everybody has to take stock in what matters to them. All of these things are enablers. And if the only thing that motivates you is ease of use, then just like privacy, there's things you give away without realizing you're giving it away until it's too late. We all have to remember that, you know, why am I pitching Seth the daily provisions to come to Chelsea? Yeah, I can order and use DoorDash and get it from where he is, but it's different when it's in my neighborhood. The restaurants, and I go back to Le Croissant, we, we were like a hub of activity. So it wasn't just about the food. It was about the community. I mean, neighborhood is about community in the end, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's about having active, vibrant communities. And we participate in building those. Nextdoor is just an enabler of that. We're not the end point. In the end, what kind of a neighborhood do you want? And are you willing to do the work to, to make that happen? I would say to you, 
that's really the thing that matters, right? And so not everybody's gonna step up and join the block association or run the block association, but be the kind of person who's gonna wave when you walk by so to somebody or, you yeah. know, throw your dog poop in the garbage versus on the floor. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's a hierarchy of needs in any neighborhood. And so, look, I think for me, New York City Next was about motivating people to step in because when you step in, in a small or large way, you become vested. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was not just about changing the narrative of New York, which it definitely was. And I say me, but you know, there's 600 volunteers that really enable that. It was also about giving people a way to step in because when you step in, you become enlisted, you become part of the movement. And so then you don't wanna leave. And I think human beings in general want to help. That is like a human need and they wanna connect, but sometimes you just don't know how. So what Nextdoor is trying to do is give you the tools to actually step in so that when, you know, the father is arranging a food drive and you're predisposed, you know how to actually be of use, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be an enabler to actually enable what neighbors are trying to do and, and neighborhoods, right? It's not about us in the end. With the elections about to take place for the new mayor and for city councillors in New York, given that Nextdoor... I suppose it could be seen as a, a, a barometer in terms of the spirit and the expectations and the hopes of the, the, the neighbourhood communities. Do you have a sense of what the, the big initiatives or the, the, the imperatives for any winner should be and what people are talking about? Yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything that's super different because, by the way, lots of journalists are on next door, right? And, and seeing the trends that you and I are mm. seeing. I went to go see, I went to hear Brian's event and the conversation is all around things like small businesses, because that's so critical to neighborhoods. The conversation is about services. We know that there's been a real issue around homelessness and making sure that the homeless actually have the services that they need and the support they need, right? There's been lots of different battles around that, but in the end, these are our neighbors. It's about environmental issues, right? I mean, there's so many issues that actually a mayor is going to have to lean into. And by the way, one of the things that's happened about being in place is I'm beginning to learn about local politics, something I knew very little about. And you see, I mean, I, you know, I went to this, I was like, wow, she was just a journalist who decided to step in and run. I was like, see, I mean, anything is possible <laughs> as long as you're game to go in. And I think that it's, it's no different than what you're reading, right? And I think it'll be interesting to see. We have many, many people. So it'll be interesting to see with our ranking system who ends up being at the front of this race. But I can tell you it's a difficult job. But you know what? Anything worth doing is going to be difficult. And this is an amazing, amazing city with lots of in incredible people who care and have lots of opinions, right? You have to love that about New York. Mm -hmm. And so, look, I say New York City Next was about bringing joy so that we gave people the joy so that they could get to the hard work that it's going to take to you know, build our city back and have it be an even more equitable place for all. The New York I came to in the 80s had a lot of flavor. It had a lot of local stores and local character. That's what makes New York, New York. We have to make sure that we set up systems to uh, enable those businesses and those artists to thrive and have it not just be about the money in New York, because that's not what you know, but but you need both, right? In the end, I think like New York is a big tent and you have to enable the system to really work together. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's nothing there's nothing you're not seeing in Nextdoor that you're not reading about in the newspapers. I mean, we're obviously here enjoying the benefits of being maskless in this in going out. And it feels like New York's almost returned to normal, mm -hmm. though I'm sitting here in Neuhaus in a meeting room <laughs> upstairs in the, in, the, in the common area. We're having to wear a mask still. But 
Do you think that in the, let's say, a year from now, are we going to start to see, with the increase in usage of Nextdoor and that uh, coming together of communities, do you think we'll start to see new forms of community events springing up? Will things like will things like New York Next have a enduring legacy, and will we start to see just whether it be I don't know what I'm calling an event, but whether it be experiences or community gatherings or community centres or more socially driven hyper local neighbourhood connectivity occurring? Well, I would say the answer to that is it depends on us. My hope, my hope is that the answer to that is yes. Right. Because I know having been in place now for a long time that like being able to be connected to my neighborhood has been even like just more magical. Right. Which, by the way, in a time of incredible loneliness, having Nathaniel and Troy down the street, being able to check on Joan and Bob, like all these things have made it just a I mean, it's not a pleasant experience because it's been a terrible pandemic, Mm -hmm. but it's made it bearable. Right. And we've had each other to get through that. The other day, I think Nathaniel or Troy said to me, we haven't seen you all week. We were wondering, like, isn't New York back? Does that mean we're not going to see each other again? And I just think like, I hope that's not the case. But I do think neighborhood, I think there's a craving. We actually did a survey. I think there's a craving for block parties for a way to connect with your neighbors again and get to know them. You need you need welcomers and hosts to get everybody connected to it's, each other because, you know, you go to a party, you need somebody to help you with the interaction sometimes. I was in, I interviewing Alani who runs the St. Luke's thrift store, St. Luke's in the field. And I was describing to her how when I was working in London, MasterCard was one of our clients and we did these, essentially it was a street parties across the country where people would get together and do street picnics, I suppose you'd call them block parties here. And it feels to me like whether it be MasterCard or someone should step up and say, that's what we need to do. We need to have a day where everyone comes together and shuts down all the streets and have one massive city block party. I'm ready for that. I've been saying that we should do that. And by the way, Pepsi is the ultimate block party brand, isn't it? They did the great spot with the Bodega Boys. I'm like, they're the ultimate block party. Let's get them and MasterCard and Nextdoor together. Exactly. There you go. That's that's the next problem to solve and at the obstacle. So if you need some help on that, then get onto my old connections at MasterCard. Okay, I'm in. Because that's that's the ultimate priceless experience. A hundred percent. It's priceless and it's definitely neighborhood. It's about revitalizing our neighborhoods and and bringing joy. There you go. Okay. Well, listen, I'm conscious of time. So I want to get to the quick fire questions. But final question before we do is where do you want to be when we hit 2030? What sort of problems? Right here. Still solving problems. (laughs) Still solving problems. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, I want to be with people I like doing things I enjoy, which is generally with people in my neighborhood. Okay. It sounds like um, around then there might be another mayoral election. Could we see Mariam running? You know, that's so funny. It's like the funniest question. I've been getting asked this question. I never really thought about that. I don't know. That's a pretty big job. But I can tell you, I love this city. That's definitely one of the things that I've known for a long time since I landed here. And it's definitely one of the things that motivates me because... I've had the good fortune of living lots of places, but there's nothing like New York. And what I love is that there's so many people in New York who are willing to step up and help, right? That, that, that's the thing that makes it amazing. I, I'm not the only person who feels that way. What we have is magical and you have to be willing to, you know, when people were fleeing, I was like, oh no, I'll be staying here and defending. No question. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm not alone. That's the good news. Okay. So quick for questions. What principles do you stand by? 
Oh, I say you have to make decisions so that you can look at yourself in the mirror at night. In the end, that's what matters. Okay. What hard choices have I had to make that might have been tough at the time, but when you look back, were the right thing? Um, one of the hardest choices was moving a ninth grader and an 11th grader to Chicago. And it was pretty hard, but honestly, in retrospect, I would say to you, it was one of the best things I ever did because seeing what life outside of New York is like for them was amazing. Where do you go to discover your new ideas or the ways to solve your problems? I go, it's not the middle I, of the night. I literally, I go on lots of walks in my neighborhood. I like, my husband says it's very hard to walk with me because I'm always stopping and taking pictures and meandering into things. But, you know, I sort of love walking because it's about the discovery. Okay. What's the biggest problem worth solving? Hmm, that's a hard one. They're all big problems worth solving. Mm-hmm. But if that'd be one you start with. Well, the biggest one I'm trying, I think the biggest one I'm trying to solve immediately is like the vibrancy of New York, right? How do we actually get a movement where people want to step in to help? I think we're in a moment where it's a call to arms, where we all need to come together and make this a moment for we and not me. Mm-hmm. And I think I think about that a lot, right? Because we have a very individualistic world and we, when we come together, we become exponential. And I think that um, how we solve for that, I think really is going to matter. Mm-hmm. Have you read Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind? No, I'm going to have oh, to look for oh, that. I think you will really like that. That should be on your top of your list. Okay. I just was yeah. reading Bob Putnam's book. So I, yeah. I'll add that to my list. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting because it just frames, brings everything down to sort of the basics of Hobbesian view of society or a Rousseau view of society and what causes society's problems and he's a brilliant historian and it's full of interesting sort of facts and data and it's a brilliant book okay I'm adding that to my list okay four people either from history or from now that you can invite around to dinner to help you plan for a better future well I'm I, I feel like I have some of that now I think um New York City Next has been enabled by a brilliant composer named Tom Kitt I think mm-hmm. artists are the soul of our city. I loved meeting Ming Jung Lee, who wrote Pachenko, because I think writers are a critical part of our society. I would say to you, it's why I always pick Doris um, Goodwin's Kearns as the person I'd want to sit next to at dinner, by the way. Good good view into history and, and engaging spark conversation. I need two more. That's not so, I'm not so good on that. Let's see, two more mm-hmm. people. I was really interested in the Rudins because they were really critical in revitalizing New York in the 70s. I found an ad they did, which was a call to arms. And I just thought, like, we had this precursor of a we, not me moment by people who were critical to actually throwing their support behind that idea. I'm interested in that. Um, Who's my fourth? I don't know. I'll have to think about that and come back to you. It's not so good for speed questioning. No, no. That's why I send the questions ahead. (laughs) I, I also, I've become really interested in the idea of Ava DuVernay-Smith and how she's been ah, reinventing yeah. the model. And, and you know, I sort of, I spent a lot of time in media. I think storytelling matters, but then also redefining the system matters. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, you, that's your four. Okay. You My go. fourth. All right. Who makes you, who has made you or continues to make you reevaluate yourself? Oh, my husband, for sure. And my children. Mm-hmm. They're closest Anyone? to me. They ask me really tough questions all the time. That's good. Keep you on your toes. Um, impossible question. What would your advice be to someone uh, that's about to go to study to, or has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told it's just impossible. Give up on it. Oh, no is just a good yes waiting to happen. 
There you go. And we finish with these questions. We're, we've come out, well, I think we're coming out of lockdown and we're going out and you end up in a karaoke bar. What's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, I'm a terrible, terrible singer. But so as a result, my karaoke song is Eye of the Tiger because you don't actually have to have a lot of range. Oh, I should, I should adopt that one then because... Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and I do love a good karaoke, I have to say, even though I'm a so terrible do- singer. Yeah, but that goes with the territory. So I think you have to be. It's, I don't think it's right when you're a good singer and you go to karaoke. But there you go. It's personal. We're all going to um, have to go to Marie's Crisis, which I've been dying to do, so that we can do oh, show tunes. That's when I def- know New York is back. Definitely. Yeah, I remember sort of um, trying to do well, not karaoke, but going to duplex and sitting on the side of the piano singing <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody one night a few years ago. Anyway, that, we won't go there. Best series during lockdown or documentary that people might have missed that, but you think they should watch? Mm, I don't know. I consumed so much media during lockdown. I watched a lot of The Bridge. I mean, I huh? liked a lot of the Nordic shows. I love. I like a good murder mystery where they're trying to solve problems. This is all coming full circle that people missed. I don't know. I, I, I took in so much content. It's kind of hard to believe. Actually, I've been watching the Tiger Woods documentary, something I would normally never watch because I'm not a sports person. I hmm. am just interested in the story of people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a book that you would like us to offer listeners that submit the best comments in Instagram or on the website? Well, the book I'm reading now actually is by somebody named Susan McPherson, The Lost Art of Connecting. See, it's like even right here. Ah, right. I think it matters, right? Like figuring out how you connect and not to network, but to actually build relationship. I think Susan's sort of a genius at that. Uh Cool. I'll put that list. And the final question, who should we interview next? I think you should interview Tom Kitt. Okay. I don't really know who Tom Kitt is. Oh, but, well, uh, so he's yeah. the man behind Next to Normal, almost famous. He is just one of the most generous, gifted people. Like, you know, he's won a MacArthur. I don't know. He's won more prizes than there are prizes to be had. And I think one of the reasons I really have enjoyed getting to know Tom is that he always says yes, and he's willing to do it for the greater good. It's not about him, right? And so it's really about the art, and he loves New York, and he's done amazing, amazing things. Cool. Well, what we do is when the episode goes live, then we ask our guests to then make that connection. So I'll follow right. up probably in about a week's time. And then so just finally, oh, something I forgot to say at the beginning. I have to say a shout out to Ben from the National Arts Club for recommending that we interview you next. And we finally got around to it, which is great. A couple that of months Ben and down I line. were interns together at BAM. So yes, there I you know. Go. I remember him telling Full you. Full circle. Yeah. And he told me about New York Next when I interviewed him as well, which was great. So it's really interesting. A small world. So, yeah, I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for your time. Uh, I've been very generous with it and sharing your great answers. And just uh, acknowledge you for your purpose-driven, connective, problem-solving spirit that is just energizing the city. And I think New York's in a better place because of it. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time. <laughs>